0: This is Sport on the Fields, a rising Phoenix special. Extracts from the movie are used with permission. 18 countries make a record entry for the International Paralympic. 24 countries were represented and 26 countries took part in the Stoke
1: Mandeville Games. It just grew like Topsy, really. Rome was the first time we managed to have Paralympic Games. A lot of people thought it was something to do with being paralysed, but Paralympic was parallel to the Olympic.
0: Hello, welcome to Sport and the Fields. This is Series 2 running throughout the postponed Tokyo 2020 Paralympic Games. I'm Jonathan Overend. And if you're in search of Paralympic content and have stumbled across this podcast, then I'm sure also by now you'll have discovered the new documentary film just released on Netflix. Rising Phoenix is an evocative, emotional celebration of the Paralympic Games with particular focus on a cast of athletes telling their true stories. It features the likes of Johnny Peacock, Tatiana McFadden and the armless archer, Matt Stutzman. Jean-Baptiste Allais, the French long jumper, has an extraordinary confession from his childhood. Bebe Vio, the Italian fencer, explains with remarkable positivity the challenges that can be overcome with the right attitude and the right dedication. It's an astonishing film, full of hope and potential. It's a film with a can-do attitude. It's beautifully shot with a contemporary soundtrack my name was the rising phoenix because the phoenix can live and die and burn and live again extraordinary tension around this stadium so on this special episode of our paralympic fields series we're going to speak to the creator of the movie greg nugent a man who was at the heart of london 2012 both the olympics and the paralympics as director of marketing and also the producer, John Batsek, an Oscar-winning producer indeed. His work on One Day in September and Searching for Sugar Man won him two Academy Awards. Rising Phoenix is available right now on Netflix. Well, Greg, John, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I've got to say, it was an absolute pleasure to, to watch your film. Um, it's so em- emotional, isn't it, and, and leaves you with a real can-do attitude Greg am I right in thinking it was your your concept your idea first up
2: yeah I mean it was actually I mean I was uh, way back when I was um pro- a quite an important part of London 2012 I was the marketing director and I, I on day one I I kind of worked out there was a lot of things to read on the Olympics it there was almost a, a book for every single thing you needed to do so it was quite it was hard work but easy to do but the Paralympics there was no there was no book. There was nothing to read. Um, and that, so I had to learn the story myself. and but, but I couldn't buy a single book. I had to buy lots of different books and print things off the internet. And then I, I read it all. It took me months to work it all out. And I just couldn't believe the story of the Paralympics. And so it, way back then, I was like, we've got to make a documentary of the story of the Paralympics. And it just, we were too busy and it left me. And then, you know, crudely, when Rio happened in 2016, um, it just struck me that the world needed to know the story so that something like that never happened again. So that's when um, that's when it stopped being a little idea in my head and that's when I reached out to mm. John and, and said, look, do you think this could be a film?
0: When you say so it never happened again, you, you mean the Paralympics almost not happening?
2: It just felt to me that the Brazilian authorities had in effect said, look, the Olympics is the real game in town and the Paralympics is not really as important. And in London, we had the opposite view. We had, an op- we had a very simple um, methodology, which was they're both the same and you treat both of them the same. My boss would say this all the time. They're both the same. They're equivalent. There's no grade between them. And it, it struck me that in Rio, they just, they thought it, because it was for people with disabilities, they thought it was less. And that, and therefore I, I felt that that was a, a kind of educational deficit, I just thought the world doesn't know just how remarkable this movement really is and and so actually the motive that that drove me to say, look this no one else seems to be doing this, and let's try and see if we can make this the story of this thing into a movie, and it was deliberate into a movie because there's so much drama in a movie, and it felt to me like the Rio thing was like something that should never happen again and I, I genuinely don't believe it can ever happen again now after what we've what
0: we've put into this film i mean really john that was one of the the striking sequences i thought of the film because i i was there i was in rio hosting the paralympics for for five live and yeah we knew there were problems and we knew there were worries and probably a couple of months out we were a little worried but i don't think i ever understood the extent of how close it came to not actually happening
1: no, and listen, and and before I embarked on this this journey, I absolutely didn't know. And 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 you know, it, it, as Greg says, it becomes, it's a sort of pivotal focal point in the film, um, and 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 you know, the the level of jeopardy at that point is kind of staggering. And the fact that the, that the Paralympics seem to be put uh, brushed aside in the way that they were being brushed aside was really really shocking. And the and, and equally. The way the team were able to bring it back on track and 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 turn it into a resounding success is kind of yes. you know sort of one of the big redemptive moments of the film.
0: Well, led by Sir Philip Craven at the IPC and his chief executive and the and the local organising committee chief as well, who, who's quite extraordinary um, by by the way. But I mean, they look like they they really bought into your concept of dramatic storytelling.
2: Yeah, listen, I think um, no, you're right. And Peter and Ian always referred to them as the three musketeers. And and I think what Andrew and Javi and and Sir Philip all understood in when we were making this film, is they understood they were they were doing something more than making a documentary. I think they were writing into the history um mm-hmm. how important this thing is. And actually I mean when you think of it like how many things are as powerful as the Paralympics I don't think there are many more and many things that are more powerful and so when you know when John and I and Peter and Ian and Tatiana started to look around and who should be in this thing it, it was very obvious those three had to fully commit to this and obviously you've seen that they do and what what I think they're doing is helping the world understand that moment of jeopardy and I think they they've done it because they they understand that by doing so that, you know, really there's no choice now. This cannot ever happen again. And actually this movement, I think, now can probably go on to have its biggest ever decade um, mm. a- after this film. So,
0: so, Johnny, it must have been quite a, an interesting balance to strike in production between telling the story of the Paralympic Games and actually bringing the human element to the to the fore what what, to give us an insight into the sort of early early conversations about how this film was going to be presented
1: i mean i think yeah you're absolutely right At, at the early stage we 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 knew that we needed to and wanted to showcase the athletes of course and 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 the directors wanted to go through a sort of process whereby they would over Skype, meet meet a, 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 a wide cross section of athletes and, and, and get a sense of which stories resonated the most and which characters felt like the strongest and the best way to sort of carry the, the biggest message. And equally at the same time, yes, we wanted and we needed to have a historical element to to the storytelling. And, and, and in a way, that balance then becomes properly struck as you get into an edit and you try and and, and you sort of experiment with, with with the balance between history and and the contemporary characters' stories. Um, so it's a it's actually a very organic process. And, and you know there were there were versions of the film that had more history and versions of the film that had less history. And ultimately, you know, ultimately, I think I think the thing that, it's, that felt like it was going to really carry the audience along and really connect with an audience is these, ex, these extraordinary stories of these athletes. And therefore, ultimately, you know, the balance is, is more in the, in the favour of those stories than it is in the history, but still the fundamental details of, that, of, of Goodman and that extraordinary history of his is in the film. So, mm-hmm. so it's, a sort of, it's, a long, it's a constant balancing process going through the edit of a film like this.
0: And there are many links, aren't there, which must have really been a, been a dream for, y- for you to sort of almost be telling a contemporary part of the story, but then be able to have a flashback which links very much in with that particular narrative at the time.
1: Yeah, I mean, the nature of Professor Goodman and what he had to endure to get to the point where he where he discovered what he might be able to do with people who had these sort of critical injuries from the war and and the way that was able to weave back and forth, as you said, with the various stories is kind of, you know, it, it, it's, it's sort of, it, it offers us so much potential to, to, to make those connections and to make them in a sort of informative, in, impactful and emotional way.
0: So you're telling the historical story, but as I say, you're also telling these amazing human interest stories of this selection of athletes from around the globe with different disabilities with different levels of impairment and in different disciplines as well greg how how was the collective made up? i mean was it was it a long list that came down to a short list? Was it one person deciding who they were going to be? How did it happen? well, it was a
2: it was a long process and I mean what what happened with this is that I, I I definitely knew that there was you know this could be just great a great story but I needed help with that and so I turned to John and and I said look is there any way we can you know you can help me do this because I really have no idea how to do this and John as I said it just said look this could be a great movie this is a great story and I think what we then did is start to reach out and and with Peter and Ian our directors they what I think we really, really um, loved about it is they almost instantly wanted to cherish the story in the way that I think um, we did, because it's a you've got one chance to get this story right. If you get this story wrong, nobody in history is going to try again. So, so, so what they had to do and what they're, what they're they had to learn a lot of stuff that they didn't know, and 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 as part of that, they began a very long process. Of, of looking at lots of athletes and listening to lots of athletes, learning the stories of lots of athletes, and then over time starting to narrow down um, where, if you like, where different characters um, fit into the overall narrative of the film. And, I mean, I, I, you know, on reflection, I can never remember a point whereby there was a tension about whether somebody should, you know, be in or out the film. I think it just happened slowly through the process and the more that they got to know the athletes the more that the cast of the film became you know became inevitable I mean a good example of that is Nintendo, who's an extraordinary individual um, from South Africa and I, I I'm I'm well into the Paralympics and I'm, I'm lucky enough to have worked on it but I'd never heard of him and then suddenly um, Peter and Ian are evangelical about you know uh, someone that they think in the next 10 years is going to be setting all the records and that I think that you know, the the way that they did that was by by really going very wide and then slowly but surely starting to fall for the characters and their stories. And also their belief in the film. And I think that's what you've had what you've got here is very similar to Sir Philip and Javi and Andrew's. The athletes completely committed to the purpose of the film. Um they completely understood its potential power and, and you can see that in the way that they perform.
0: And one of the iconic uh, moments, I guess, of the film, John, is when Ntando is is basically racing a cheetah, right? Yes.
2: <laughs> so, h- how did that happen?
1: Well, uh, my recollection of it is that that was his nickname.
2: It's the name. It's the name. The name of his first blade. It's the it name of his the name first of his prosthetic.
1: First prosthetic blade, and so that gave the you know, it is a real cheetah. We are, we didn't have the budget to to. to C- computer
2: generate a cheetah
0: yeah well i mean that, i suppose that's that's fundamentally what I'm, <laughs> what I'm asking we are we are talking no, about a real cheetah here yeah
2: <laughs> it was done it was done with um it was uh, something that, if i remember rightly that we that that almost happened like on the in the final build-up to the shoot and it was something that the athlete was particularly keen on and then you know you then have to make sure that everyone's safe and everybody is treating the animal with the respect that it deserves but it was something that i mean as john said the I remember, John, there was a very big meeting where Peter and Ian had done all their kind of visualization of, of, and they could find like epic visuals of Olympians, but the truth is no one had ever decided to shoot Paralympians in the same way. And they came in with a real conviction that we're going to, you know, this needs correcting. And that's where I think a lot of the, the cinema, really incredible cinematography that come from what they did came from was a kind of, realization that again a bit of prejudice in the system that people producing tv programs with people with disability in them or films were like well we don't need to put as much money into this because or, or production standards because it's for people with disability and they they obviously just wanted to smash that and they have
0: there's one thing greg i wanted to to ask you about having been to the paralympics in in rio and spoken to a lot of athletes the whole question of being uh, inspiring, being an inspiration to people, is a bit of a a, a grey area, isn't it? Some people are okay with it. Some people sort of have a, a real problem with it, so, as if to say, "Well, you wouldn't say that to an able-bodied competitor." But in a, in in a way, as a marketing man, you understand the need to tell the backstory in order to get people to engage with the with the current story. So, was that on your mind at all? Getting getting that that balance right.
2: It was it was at the forefront of everything that I think we did. I mean, look when. If I go back in time, we were never accused of that kind of thing when it came to London 2012 because I think the way that we did it um, and we worked a lot with the disability movement and we worked a lot with all of the key charities and we really, really wanted to make sure that it was done in a way that they felt was was in tune with their values. And so in London, we didn't actually really um, have that problem. But what has, what I think has happened since is I think the advertising market particularly has, has, has wanted to use um, characters in their adverts, which, by the way, are 30 seconds long, where there's people with impairment. And that's great news, right, because that didn't used to happen and it's changing attitudes. But the problem with that is I think that they are very much only focused on, if you like, the winning, the the kind of clenched fist, the the kind of inspirational bit of um, of, of the powers that Paralympians have. And so when we went into the film, um, I mean, you know, every backstory is there and the truth of what it's like to actually uh, be disabled is there. And there's, you know, Riley talking about depression and, and you know, a lot of the athletes, you know, Johnny Peacock's recently come out and said that he's never really thought about the movement before. He, he's only thought about the sport and he now understands the responsibility. So I, I'm very aware of it and I think it's... Um, it's something that we really respected in the production process of this. I mean, one of the things, by the way, is that, that when we went into making the film, it was very obvious to us that we needed to work with and have people that worked for us on the production um, that actually had impairments and disabilities. And we're very proud to say that um, 16%, one, six, 16% of the people that worked on the film actually had an impairment and classified themselves as having a disability. And that, I mean, you know, we don't want to get into comparisons, but that's a really, really big number for a film, um, because the filmmaking industry is not always very easy for people with disability and impairments.
0: No, and it's actually something that um, I was talking to Tani Gray-Thompson about um, on a a previous episode of this series, because she recently got involved in a little bit of a Twitter spat with uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Of course, recently uh, played uh, a disabled character, and and you know she was basically hitting it back onto him, saying, "Well, you know, why, why were you doing that in the first place? Why wasn't it a disabled actor? Is there a a, a while still to go, John? Do you think before we get more um, disabled representation in in Hollywood, to use that that broad overarching phrase?
1: I mean, listen, I, <coughs> as much as I'm in a position to answer that, I I, I fear, you know, I I think as Greg says things are definitely moving in that direction across the board and that, that, that can only be a good thing. And, and as he said, the way we went about making this film, you know, we did everything we we possibly could, um, you know, in that, in that respect, I think Hollywood, you know, has got, it's got a lot to learn on a lot of fronts, but, 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 but it'd be nice to think that, that, that people are, people are thinking that way and that, that progress, you know, will be made.
0: But that's where the Paralympic movement and films like this can really make a difference, though, don't you think?
1: For sure, yes, I absolutely do. Because ultimately, you know, this this film is about the Paralympics, but it's about life as well. You know, it's about it's 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 there's something incredibly powerful about these people's stories and the way they tell them and what they and what they've managed to achieve with their own lives, and it transcends the sport. It's the thing about. These documentaries that I that to me is always the secret ingredient is, is does the story have the, the ability to be greater than the sum of its parts and to transcend that core story? And, and, and in so doing, teach people who come to, to it, who know nothing about it, when those who think they do know about it, teach them new things. And I think this film absolutely does do that.
0: Greg, one of the other key characters in the film is an extraordinary long jumper, originally from Burundi, who represents France, Jean-Baptiste Aleix. And his story, without giving too much away, is both harrowing and inspiring in equal measure, isn't it? I I, I just wonder, and, and there's a confession from him in the film about a tragic event in his, in his childhood, which basically has shaped the rest of his life. I, I just wondered how much of that story were you aware of when you uh, identified him, when you sat down to, to start interviewing him?
2: I think that we were very aware of the story and very respectful of it. And I just think we had an instinct. Um, and again, it was a Peter and Ian, um, you know, brought that to the table where, where I think we were aware of him. He's a very successful, incredible sports person. But the one thing I'd say is I feel that that story hadn't become... As, as perhaps as well known as it ought to be given how dramatic it is mm. and how and how tragic it is, but also his his resilience um having gone through what he's gone through and the the elements to his story should be more well known. And again I put that down to um prejudice and 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 so what again it was one of those things where we, we understood the story and Peter and Ian really wanted to work with him to see whether he was willing to tell that story in the way that he did and and he absolutely wanted to in the way that he did because he he thinks that story is important and should be told and it's very moving and it's um it's I think it's what you get when you when you do work with people about real life stories is they're they're incredible and and his story is really quite remarkable but the thing that I get from him personally is his resilience and and one of the things that I would say that i I think um is happening with the film right now is that when people are watching this now, um, and you know when you go through making a film and you start finishing it, you show a small number of people. But one of the things that I think is happening is the stories that whether it's Jean Baptiste or um, Bebe or Matt, I think they're 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 really chiming with the times that we're in, and you know I think COVID is holding us all back, mm. and and I think when we see this film. I think what's happening at the moment in my mind is that because we're all feeling constraint, I think that our empathy is changing. And, uh, and I think that's where I think the movie will really chime and, and stories like Jean-Baptiste and others will really chime because I think that's where they're going to hopefully um, help us get through this um, global moment. Uh,
0: that's, that's really interesting. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with you. It's that frankness, isn't it? That frankness of conversation almost uh, tackling a challenge head on. Which uh, it, And the tone in general, the tone of conversation around disability, I suppose, is one of the, the key themes here.
2: Yeah. And I think also, if I may, that um, somebody clever once said to me the difference between an Olympian and a Paralympian is that the Paralympian can't afford to be media trained. Um, and and that was a silly little thing, but it was actually there's a lot of truth in it. And so what I think you get with a Paralympian is you get something much closer to um to the kind of person that you want to go and have a pint with and listen to the stories of and often with the Olympics is people are so well trained to talk and to you know represent and they're so used to not saying anything but actually what you've got in this film is the way that people tell their stories so honestly and they're not hiding anything you know but they do understand the power of their story and I think that's what's so moving actually when you then watch it and you learn the story and I think it changes it 's going to change a lot of people 's minds of what we what we think is is really about ability and not disability it 's going to change a, a lot of people in the way they think at least we hope it does
0: yes uh, as well as the stories and the the, the cinematography uh, there is um, a vibrant uh, a really uplifting soundtrack John that runs throughout this film, culminating in the theme tune that comes on at the end under the credits or over the credits um which completely knocked me for six um can you tell us a little bit about how that came about and and who it is performing right at the end of the film
1: yes uh, well um the score is is by a british composer called daniel pemberton and so we got daniel and daniel agreed to write the score and then greg was it you who started the idea of trying to have a song for the end of the film? Or maybe Daniel did, but but we all put our heads together to try and figure out how who could be the right people to record a song for the, the end titles. And Daniel had had some contact with three different rappers, all of whom are from the disabled community, American rappers. And, you know, they, he collaborated with them. They, they wrote the song together. And... Um, and ultimately, you know, that's the song that you hear. That is now the song that you hear at the end of this film, of our film. Um, called, the song is called Rising Phoenix, unsurprisingly. Yeah,
2: there's three of them. There's George Tragic and um, Tony, Hick- Tony Hickman and Keith Jones. And they, they, um, they, they form a, a thing, called, as John said, called Crip Hop. Um, and listen, what Daniel did do was when he was scoring the movie, we, we, we said to him at the start, look, can we work with as many uh, disabled musicians as possible? And he said, of course we can. And so he, every time he'd come back from a meeting, he'd have a different disabled musician. And, and you know, like, like John said, we, we, when we started to get into the, you know, how, what, what's the equivalent of our Bond track, if you like, when Daniel was like, well, I've managed to convince three disabled um, rappers from America. And then I, I actually spoke to George Tragic because he he's an incredible person. And he, um, he said that he'd been told previously never to rap about his disability. And I was like, really? Cause like you couldn't tell Jay-Z not to rap about his life. So anyway, so this thing has become pretty sensational, John, probably in the last like eight weeks. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, one final question, if I may, to, to, to each of you um, searching for sugar man is a film that you, <laughs> you worked on, you produced and you, you won an, won an Oscar for Congratulations Um, It's one of my favourite music documentaries If you haven't seen this It's about the the guitarist Rodriguez The singer-songwriter He's an extraordinary character Um, But it, it was the very first movie That I bought on iTunes and it, it remains the only movie on my very first iPad, which is a bit of a sort of moment in technological history and a draw somewhere, mm. John. So I'll never forget it. A because it's a brilliant film, and B because it's the only movie in my first ever digital movie. So uh, that's great. That's vis nothing at all, but congratulations.
1: Well, yeah, listen, it was a that was a that was an amazing, amazing experience, and um, it was a beautiful film to work on, uh, and. Yeah, it was. I always I used to refer to it as a magic carpet ride that film because the director Malik Bendjelloul came to see us when he was some way through making the film. He just ran aground and sort of was thinking of giving up, and and we sort of we 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 rekindled his spirit and helped him raise more money and helped him finish the film and then went on this extraordinary journey with him and it that that was you know that won every award under the sun and ultimately um, culminating in the Academy Award. And yes, it was a. It's, an, it's a beautiful story, and, yeah, it's a lovely film. That was a great experience.
0: Mm. And, Greg, I wanted to ask you, obviously there's a lot of amazing images from London 2012 uh, in your film, including the classic images of Johnny Peacock on the start line on that uh, extraordinary night. Uh, as a man who was very much at the heart of both the Olympic and the Paralympic Games, how, how important was it to have just the one Organising committee. I mean, you touched on this a little bit earlier, but w- was that absolutely fundamental to the success of the Paralympic Games?
2: Oh yeah. I mean, <clears throat> they're, they're in. You know, if you if you know your history, if you have two, one's bigger than the other. One gets all the budget. The other one doesn't. Um, and so you automatically, uh, you know, have kind of two two different size events and. But with London, we we just not only did we have one organising committee, we actually at one point renamed the committee, the London um, 2012 Paralympic and Olympic Committee, because everyone was just kept calling us the Olympic Committee. Mm. Um, and I think it gave us a, you know, an attitude. I never forget the morning after the Olympics finished, <clears throat> and we'd had a few beers. You can imagine, you know, we're and you turn around, you look around you, and everyone's there. You name it. They're, they're all in the room and you think, whoa. And the following morning, we got called to a meeting at eight in the morning and it was like, go again. And it, there was no break. There was no no one slept. It was just like, right, the same again. So I think it was vital and it, and I think it, it led to, you know, I, I loved the Olympics, but I really fell in love with the Paralympics. It's an, it's it's an ama- had an amazing influence on me and and I think so many people.
0: And how proud are you of the the legacy that was created by 2012?
2: Yeah, I'm really proud because I think the biggest legacy of 2012 is our minds. I mean, I think it's incredible what's happened in East London. Brilliant, you know. Like, I'm not sure I would have let West Ham have that stadium. I mean, that's a kind of separate podcast, right? But but the point being that land has transformed itself. You know, there are but actually the biggest change was the way we think the biggest change there's more people in employment with disability in this country now massively compared to 2012 and that's the for me that's the greatest legacy and and um you know one of the people at the end of the film that we do dedicate the film to is tessa Jao, who had a phenomenal impact on all of us but she just had a very simple golden rule which she'd spend as much time talking about the olympics as she would the paras she'd never talk about one more than the other and it set a tone for the whole project so now i'm very proud listen I'm, I'm really hopeful that um i mean my, on the Sugarman thing quickly my my friends never ask how the films go in. they always ask me how john's going because he's the guy that did sugar man i spend more time talking about sugar man than, than rising <laughs> phoenix but um but um but listen, no, I'm I'm very hopeful now that there's a story in every country in the world that everyone can understand that will have the same kind of effect that our game's had in to the UK.
0: Gentlemen, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time. Congratulations on the movie and um, and, and all the very best to you both. Thank you. Uh,
1: thank you, Jonathan. Pleasure talking to you. Thank
2: you, Jonathan. Thank you, pleasure.
0: Rising Phoenix, available on Netflix. It was impossible at the beginning, but everything is impossible at the beginning. You just need to to, to believe in yourself. Just go and do whatever you want.
2: Sport in the Fields is a 9419 independent production.